What's with the smooth jazz? Is that Chick Corea? Welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. I see. The revolution will not be televised, but we're not on television. This is hell live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith will also be joining us a little bit later. Today, we'll, we will be covering another of the revolutions that the U.S. mainstream media refuses to televise, and that's the Lebanese revolution that has been taking place for nearly two months now, with nary a peep from the establishment press here in the States. And I believe that's the first time I've ever used the word nary, except in extraordinary on our show. What little coverage I have seen simplifies the revolution as being against an increase in taxes on gas and tobacco and online phone calls, as if it was nothing but an anti-taxation uprising, a libertarian rebellion against those dreaded, hated, horrible taxes. But that's not why protesters are angry. They're upset about the nation's economic crisis, government corruption, the wasting of public resources, sectarian rule, laws shielding the wealthiest from any accountability, and the lack of basic services such as electricity, water, and garbage pickup. More than anything, however, this is a constitutional crisis born out of a document imposed on the then-just-created nation of Lebanon by their former French colonial rulers, French colonial rulers who forced Lebanon and Syria to separate into two countries against their will. This is a radical revolution that seeks a radical reconsideration of Lebanon's founding document, and we'll learn all about it when we speak with anthropologist Maya Mikdashi, who wrote the Jadalia.com article Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer. Maya is co-director of the 2003 documentary film About Baghdad, the first documentary film to ever have been made in Iraq following the fall of Saddam Hussein's government. Maya is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Rutgers University and co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia E-Zine. We're also revealing the final five titles to make our favorite books of 2019 list, each of which was featured on our show in an interview with each of the book's authors. And of course, we're wrapping up this week with a moment of truth live from our contributor, Jeff Dorchin in Los Angeles. This week's question from Elle is... What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio right now, and you still have a chance to win, although we are going to be naming the winner of the question from hell right now. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a surprise Christmas gift. We're not going to spoil the surprise, but we can give you a hint of what you're getting this year, and it's one of the books that made our best of best books of 2019. 
2019 list. Which one will it be? We won't tell and ruin the surprise. But they all would make great holiday gifts for the person who you like in your life or for that really annoying uncle or aunt who hates the fact that you, they think you're a communist. Alex, do you have the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. So uh, get him in, everybody. Is your last chance to answer. What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Benjamin C. says a small piece of salami. I don't even, I don't know. Don't get it. Nikki says a bottle of Saw Palmetto and one of Murray Bookchin's books. What is Saw Palmetto? I don't know. I've heard it before, and I don't know what it is. And I did see a, I was at a rest area stop, and I saw a sticker of Murray Bookchin on a lamppost, and somebody put a sticker of This Is Hell, a bubble, one of our, you know, sub, uh, subverting advertising stickers on it so it looked like Murray Bookchin was saying this is hell it was very cute uh, promising research shows that saw palmetto may help increase testosterone levels improve prostate health reduce inflammation and prevent hair loss no oh. damn all right uh, so there you go Nick A says <laughs> so this is hell news for you uh, mm-hmm. this, uh, Nick A says Jeremy Corbyn for PM mm. Jeff C says a picture of brown Jesus <laughs> I also don't get that but I like that uh, what are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas? Andrew P says a balloon to brush his hair. Wait, I already read that. Yeah. What is going on with Facebook? I don't know, dude. Display I've noticed... new. Display by new. I don't know. But who did the balloon hair one? Who was that? Uh, that was Andrew P. Okay. Getting on here twice. Okay. Leslie P says $20 and plenty of shared Bernie memes. <laughs> Dennis H says a lot of donor request emails. <laughs> uh, Matt M says concessions. <laughs> Nick P says a handout. What are you getting, Bernie Sanders, for Christmas? These are so mean. Uh, Mark C. says, a wheelchair. <laughs> See, come on. <laughs> uh, Astrid N. says, the Lorax with an AR-15 that transforms money into honeybees. <laughs> what are you getting, Bernie Sanders, for Christmas? Bradley R. says, a partridge in a society. Uh, Riker S. says, communist manifesto. <laughs> and then also says, nothing, he's Jewish. And uh, finally, maybe according to this uh, damn Facebook display by new, Krimsky K. says, a bulletproof vest. <laughs> No, no fish. <laughs> Krimsky K, bulletproof vest. It's pretty good. No fish. Vest, no fish. All right, I like that one too. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, we, I don't have a computer in our studio yet. That is going to be something that will be one of our first purchases in uh, 2019. And so show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support so we can actually get that computer for the space. Or become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. So I don't have access to all the answers sitting in front of me like Alex does. I do remember that one of the ones, one of the answers I did like, uh, Alex, was uh, that uh, to the answer for the question from hell, what are you getting for Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Um, lozenges. Somebody said lozenges. Lots of lozenges. That was pretty good. I did like Andrew P. saying. That was a Borky B. You said lozenges. Borky. Lots and lots of lozenges. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I also liked Andrew P. saying a balloon to come his hair with uh, Jeff C, a picture of brown Jesus, which is great. Oh, did you, you didn't see the other answers. There's answers about Extian. Did you see Extian? Adam Augusto. Oh, yeah, he said he's not a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. There's a question from hell, so I can I can do this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Krimsky K uh, saying a bulletproof vest, <laughs> no fish. I like all those answers. Let me think about it. My answer to this week's question, Mel. What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? What are you getting for Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year is 
An apology from Hillary Clinton for consistently bashing Bernie for not doing enough to help her win in 2016 despite actual documented evidence written in her own hand following her losing presidential bid that states how grateful she was for all of his help during her campaign. Criminy. All right, let's give it to Krimsky K. That's too good of an answer. Uh, the winner for this week's question from hell, what are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year, is Krimsky, who said a bulletproof vest. No fish. <laughs> Don't get the no fish thing, but okay. I guess it's Friday, you know, no fish. You have won a surprise Christmas gift, Krimsky. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio with your mailing address, and we will get your secret gift in the mail, ASAP. It's time to reveal two more of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. Traditional morality has been weaponized and valorization of markets has replaced what was democratic governance. With freedom and morality now confined to the right wing's parameters, neoliberalism has become a Frankenstein that even its organizers could not foresee. At least that's political theorist Wendy Brown's argument in her book, which was one of our favorites to be featured on This Is Hell this year, the title of which is In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, the Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. Is it possible neoliberalism was a well-intended attempt at democratization of the market that went horribly, horribly wrong? Was Milton Friedman not as evil as I think he was? And I think he was pretty darn evil. Wendy's book does something that we hope to accomplish here on This Is Hell each and every week, and that is reconsidering what we think we know about the world around us. Wendy is class of 1936 first chair at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches political theory. You can hear our November 12th interview with Wendy at our website, thisishell.com. Our 12th book to make our list for 2019 explains that real estate, like most things in the United States, has a long history of blatant racism while reinforcing white privilege and supremacy. That racism led to unfair and unequal home loans with no risk to the lender as these bad loans were guaranteed by the government. And those lousy loans were being used to move African Americans from relatively quality public housing to far worse homes in reaction to a manufactured housing crisis that was just as made up as the urban crisis that led to these racist practices. The borrower would then find themselves in dilapidated homes whose repair costs, let alone mortgage payment, were often outside the reach of many in the community, leading to large swaths of urban decay. All while inner-city African Americans were paying more for their rundown homes in their rundown neighborhoods than white people were paying in their glistening new suburbs. It's a truly ugly history, and we learned all about it here on This Is Hell when we spoke with Kianga Yamada Taylor about her book, one of our favorites of this year, Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership. Real estate is a racist industry that leads to unfair loans for African Americans on properties that are crumbling with absolutely no risk to the lender, causing a cycle of lending, repair, decay, foreclosure, only to repeat the same process over and over and over and over again as the industry profits. Here to help uh, the person who helped us understand all of this is Kiangi Yamada-Taylor and her fantastic book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership, one of our favorites to be featured this year on This Is Hell. Kianga is Assistant Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. You can follow Kianga on Twitter at Kianga Yamada. Listen to our November, 6th, or November 19th interview with Kianga and all our interviews with the authors of our favorite books featured on This Is Hell in 2019 at our website, This Is Hell. Dot com. Coming up on This Is Hell, 
There's three more books left on this year's list, and we'll be sharing all of those with you throughout the next hour. We'll find out about the constitutional crisis that is the Lebanese revolution. We'll have the, well, we already did all the rest of the answers for the question from hell. We will we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith will be joining us in just a little bit. Uh, we'll be getting to Maya in just a couple of seconds. In the meantime, I just wanted to, uh, I guess I'll tell you one more of our books to make the list for this year. Our, fin- our, our next book on our list to make this year's list of favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell is by a frequent tr- contributor to This Is Hell. The book's author is on a semi-regular basis because there's a long history of police violence in Chicago, but Chicago has also been the home of fighting against police violence and torture for a very long time. Our last, or our next book to make this year's list is The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago by Flint Taylor. Flint was part of the team of lawyers who successfully charged the Chicago police with murder and the assassination of Fred Hampton. He's defended victims of police violence all over the country, not only in Chicago, but Milwaukee, New Orleans, everywhere. You name the town, he's probably been there fighting police violence. He was part of the team of lawyers that ended up sending former Chicago police detective John Burge accusing, accused of torture, torturing innocent victims into guilty pleas, some of whom ended up on death row. And he helped uh, negotiate the historic reparations that the city of Chicago have given in the wake of the Burge torture case. Flint is the founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago. Find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. And if you're somebody of limited means and you need to have some legal advice, Go to thepeopleslawoffice.com. Call them up. They're always very, very helpful, no matter what your situation is. Listen to our March 23rd interview with Flint about his memoir and all of the interviews with our authors of the books that made this year's list at thisishell.com. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. In Lebanon, a revolution has been raging for nearly two months. Not that you would know about it if you follow the news media here in the U.S. It's one of many uprisings around the world that are being ignored in the States. However, we are very fortunate to have someone who can explain what appears to be a constitutional crisis here to tell us what's happening in the Lebanese revolution. Live from Beirut, anthropologist Maya Mikdashi wrote the Jadalia.com article, Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer. You can follow Maya on Twitter at Maya Mikdashi. Thank you so much for being on our show this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Maya, here's a brief summary I gave earlier this week on what is taking place in Lebanon. And I know that this is going to fall far short of describing the events on the ground. But So feel free to correct me in any way because our primary goal here on our show is to learn. I told listeners that in what's being called the Lebanese Revolution, protesters are angry about an economic crisis, government corruption, the wasting of public resources, sectarian rule, laws shielding the 1% from any accountability – 
and the lack of basic services such as electricity, water, and garbage collection. It started in October with the government announcing plans to raise taxes on gasoline, tobacco, and online phone calls. But they, these, uh, this uprising is about a lot more than tax hikes, uh, tax hikes, although I'm certain that's how the Western media is depicting them because the West likes to think all uprisings, all revolutions are anti-tax rebellions. Is this all about the raising of taxes in Lebanon and what is missed when it is only reported as an uprising against taxes? Uh, well, it's definitely not just an uprising against taxes. Uh, I would say the WhatsApp tax was kind of the uh, final straw that broke the back of people in Lebanon. Uh, and it's probably, it was uh, the point at which really people just said, we can't take this anymore. Uh, however, uh, it would be totally disingenuous to talk about this as a reason. We've been, Lebanon has been sort of slowly, the public sector, the economy, and uh, inequality and wealth polarization and concentration has been increasing steadily since the end of the Civil War in 1990. I will say I do think that there's a way in which the coverage on Lebanon as a quote-unquote WhatsApp revolution uh, does two things. First of all, we shouldn't. We should actually explain and understand why a WhatsApp tax was so uh, outrageous, and that is because anyway, Lebanese citizens pay some of the highest telecom rates in the world, while having having some of the highest income polarization and wealth uh, concentration in the world, and you know people survive. I mean, WhatsApp was a way to get away from these uh, punitive pricing on telecom and stay in touch with each other, particularly because many people live abroad and they stay in contact with their families via WhatsApp. So it's not a WhatsApp revolution, but that's not to say that, in fact, these kinds of regressive taxation do matter and they do hit always the most vulnerable. And that has to do with the lack of accountability of any political elites that they think, first of all, that truly anything that hits uh, the most vulnerable, they will not be held accountable for. And they have no uh, sense of what people are actually, what people's living conditions actually are. That's sort of one side. The other side I'll say is that uh, in the United States, there is a way that any uprising or revolution in the Middle East is often uh, reduced to these kinds of very simplistic uh, explanations and extremely uh, infantilizing ones, right? So like the Egyptian uprising and revolution was, I think, the Facebook revolution. I think that's what it was called. There were others that are, you know, Twitter uprisings. Uh, and now this is, again, a WhatsApp. Now, if you realize all of these are about tech and they're all about uh, uh, sort of like the worst stereotypes about people in the Middle East that they are moved completely by one sort of issue, that they don't have a history, so that anytime there is a mass protest, people can only offer these extremely simplistic solutions. So I just want to keep those two things in mind. Oh, definitely. Uh, that it's not just Lebanon. There's a trend in thinking this way about the Middle East. Right, and so as uh, do you find that kind of coverage... 
does would you say that that kind of coverage is racist? Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, it is. I understand the the point of the question. I think it's extremely discriminatory. I will say uh, it is a way of viewing Arabs and and trying to quote unquote explain their actions in extremely simplistic terms and not allowing uh, the complexities of history, political economy, social and legal histories and presence, and the transnationalism of the Arab world and its uh, the fact that its linkages with the transnational world does get left off. The reason I don't want to just say that, use the term racist on itself, is because the Arab world and the Middle East also it has a racial politics to it. So it's a multi, if we use race in a sort of intersectional framework, then I would say yes. But I don't want to use it just and then lose sight of the fact that race is also a dynamic in the Middle East, uh, socially, politically, and economically. When the revolutions were being called Twitter revolutions or Facebook revolutions, there seemed to be, and and those weren't the only two ways, there seemed to be an attempt by the Mm -hmm. U.S. media to make it that the United States had somehow, our great technological achievements had somehow (laughs) created these democratic uprisings, right? That's that it was all the United States. It was about taking agency away from the people in the Middle East. Why do you think that's the... why, what is the point of that kind of writing? Is that just people just writing in a nationalist, patriotic way here in the United States? What, how does, what is the effect on the people in the Middle East when we view these revolutions as something that were created by the United States, not or by our technology, not by the people in the Middle East? Uh, well, I think one thing that it does is that it makes uh, it, it sort of covers U.S. policy, U.S. imperial political policy of which uh, technology is a, is a, uh, one of the mediums that it's practiced in. So it allows, so it sort of says, oh no, let's just look at this, these sort of tech, totally depoliticized tech industries, as opposed to actual U.S. imperial entanglement investment in the region uh, for a very long time and at several different stages. So that's, I think, one of the things that it achieves. But honestly, I'm not sure how, uh, in a lot of the mainstream journalism, I'm not, I'm not even sure how intentional it is. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just uh, very deeply ingrained that coverage of the Middle East is thin. It's uh, not historically uh, deep. And it's and it rarely takes on the role that the United States and that U.S. empire plays in the region. You write the Lebanese kind of about I mean, a very good example of this. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say a very good example of this is, is, is Iraq today. The uprising in Iraq. You can't. Uh, you can't. Uh, and if you follow this. You can't follow the, if you follow the coverage on Iraq, you rarely see uh, a sort of deep uh, addressing of U.S. imperial policy in Iraq, including the occupation, but even previous to the occupation. And I think that that is not only a politicized uh, effect, a sort of politicized journalistic effect, 
But I think it's also because of the disappearance of U.S. imperial history in the history of the United States. I have students, and I teach at Rutgers University, uh, for example, who don't know what Abu Ghraib was, uh, you know, the big torture scandal in Iraq when U.S. military tortured prisoners in Iraq. They don't know some of the basic facts of U.S. history in the Middle East, and, and I'm not talking, you know, far away history. I'm talking about very contemporary history. So does that lack, do you think that that lack of knowledge of U.S. imperialism, what impact does that have on, say, the rise of the far right here in the United States? Could you say more about that? Um, uh, well, what, what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm just wondering if the erasure of U.S. imperial history from our curriculum and from our popular knowledge, if that is leading to the rise of uh, white, the, the increased rise of white nationalism and fascism here in the United States. If you erase the history of U.S. imperialism, I can understand oh. how you might think that the United States is definitely innocent in every way and exceptional in every way. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that plays a role, but honestly, right, the erasure of U.S. imperialism begins, quote-unquote, at home. The U.S. is a settler colony. So we don't even need to, I mean, I think the erasure of imperialism is partly because the historical condition of the United States is imperialism. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. That's, that's, that's brilliant. All right, so let's get to, <laughs> let's get to your writing about uh, the Lebanese uh, Constitution. You write the Lebanese Constitution was promulgated in 1926 under the French mandate, and you talk about how there seems to be a sort of constitutional crisis happening within Lebanon. Does the Constitution in Lebanon suffer from any French colonial legacy in Lebanon? And if so, how? Uh, well, the Constitution uh, was promulgated under uh, the French mandate. I don't know, uh, and it is largely, and it has been amended, right, several times since then and since the Lebanese state became independent in 1943. So I don't know if I would use the word uh, suffer, but it definitely still has a lot of the uh, spirit and the content of the time in which it was written, which is kind of the heyday of, of sort of liberalism, right? Like international. Uh, this is pre-World War II. This is uh, towards the end of the French Empire. This is, uh, I mean, in the Middle East, at least. And uh, so it definitely, that is the historical condition under which it was promulgated. It also tried to... And I think what's interesting about constitutions is the way, actually, they're quite similar to each other. A lot of the, the, if you look at different constitutions across the world, they're all, they all have a lot of similarities. They're kind of modular forms. And that is probably because the nation state itself is a modular form. And, most, and, and the sort of, you know, the doubling or the explosion of nation states in the late colonial, post-colonial era so there, is, there are a lot of similarities across constitutions. Now, I'm not constitutional crisis. I think Lebanon has been in a constitutional crisis since the end of the Civil War. It's just now that I think the uprising is really putting its thumb on it. 
Do you know what I mean? Like the, it's now that the uprising is actually saying, okay, so what has happened in these past 30 years? How is it that we have this constitution that has yet to be, and in particular, the clauses of the constitution that are post-war amendments to the constitution have not been enacted. So there is a constitutional crisis. It is a crisis that has been uh, happening since 1990. We have been in a constitutional blockage that every government elected since the Civil War has been in violation of the constitution because it's not actually following or enacting the uh, post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution that were supposed to change the nature of the state. And I think what's happening now is that the uprising is able to mobilize this argument and to call uh, for the implementation of the Constitution. As a, as a, and, it, and it produces a lot of, I think, ideological, affective, and, and uh, rhetorical power. It gives protesters that power to say, actually, it's the government that has been violating the Constitution. Now, we can talk also about what the Constitution actually is uh, and, uh, you know, the multifaceted aspects of the uprising. Because the uprising is not only contained by the Constitution or calls for constitutional reform. That is one strand in a much larger set of discourses about uh, what needs to happen why people are taking to the streets, and um, you know what possible demands and solutions are being offered. You write that the recent protest movement in Lebanon, which began on October 17, 2019, has generated renewed interest in the Lebanese constitution with a lot of what might be called constitution talk by both protesters and the political class. In your article, as you point out, you focus on two issue, issues that have renewed and stimulated much interest in the constitution. Calls for, one, the removal of sectarian representation in parliament, and two, a unified personal status law. What is so wrong with sectarian representation in parliament? Doesn't that give each of the four Muslim sects, 12 Christian sects, the Druze sect, and Judaism proportionate representation in parliament? Doesn't that give each sect a voice in parliament? And obviously I'm phrasing this in a devil's advocate way, but what is so wrong with sectarian <laughs> representation in parliament? Uh, well, first let me just say the Jewish sect is, is a Muslim sect legally. So it's actually one of the Muslim sects uh, that make up the 50-50 split in parliament. Uh, I think the main uh, problem with this kind of representation is that it assumes what political identity is. So it claims to represent something that it's actually creating in that moment. So to say, okay, we need political sectarianism in order to represent the interests of all of these different sects and these different religions assumes that that is actually the, the category of political difference that matters at the same time that it erases the active role that the state and politicians play in curating those modes of political difference. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I want to just real quickly just touch on the <laughs> idea of a unified personal status law. What exactly do you mean by that? Because I know that our listeners probably aren't aware of what that kind of law entails. So what is, what, why are they demanding a unified personal status law? So, uh, 
personal status laws are laws that basically try to or they regulate what are what they consider to be aspects of quote unquote personal life now as a feminist i know that there's nothing more political than the personal and there's no i mean this division between the private and the public spheres is an active one that produces both a liberal idea of uh, sort of produces liberalism but also produces the notion of a not natural a domestic, private sphere, and a public, rational, political one. So I just want to make that clear. When we're talking about personal status laws, we're talking about a claim to adjudicate the quote-unquote personal affairs of citizens. But we know, for example, there's nothing that's sort of more political than regulating a family. That's one of the core, actually, uh, sites of politics in the world. So... What these laws do is they adjudicate things like marriage, divorce, um, inheritance, adoption, and other aspects that are considered, quote-unquote, parts of your personal life. And because there are 15 different laws in Lebanon, each one, uh, there are basically, as you said, 18 recognized sects and 15 different personal status laws. And depending on... uh, what sect you are, you follow or you fall under the jurisdiction of one of these rules. So there has been, uh, for decades now, actually, uh, political movements and activism for a civil marriage law and or a civil personal status. And I have to say, and I wrote this in the article, it's not so much the protesters now that are calling for this. They're not calling for a unified personal status law. That's not one of the main demands. However, that is something that the president of Lebanon said in a speech uh, in his conversation on ending political sectarianism. And what I wrote in the article was actually about how he was using this idea to deflect from actually ending political sectarianism. So uh, if you are somebody who is a non-believer, an agnostic, an atheist in Lebanon, what personal status law would you fall under? Or is there no uh, personal status law for you? Uh, No, I mean, this is why I think we have to really study what religion and sectarian uh, categories are and how they operate. Because quite honestly, to be a Sunni or a Shi'i or a Maronite on paper uh, doesn't require any kind of faith or practice on your part. It's just an inherited governmental category from your father. So uh, you can be, an even if you are an atheist, and even if you're publicly saying, I'm an atheist, I'm an atheist, I'm an atheist, I'm a Marxist atheist, when it comes to your legal affairs, you follow the law that is uh, connected to your sect uh, in government paperwork, in the census registries. And the only uh, way or how that actually, how you are identified as such has nothing to do with sort of internal registers of self and affiliation or belief or practice. It is just inherited through the father. Wow, that's just so. uh, And and does it also, is there an assumption then within the Lebanese government and Lebanese constitution that every, every sect, every religion 
is politically monolithic, that if you are a Shia, you believe these politics, that if you're a Sunni, you believe these politics, that if you're a Jewish, you believe these politics. Is that the assumption within the, con- within the kind of uh, sectarianism that they have? Uh, I think that political leaders uh, want that to be the case, but it's not the case. I think that there is a way in which uh, people speak about the system. And what do you know? We got broken off from a call to... Lebanon, as I kind of expected would be happening throughout this uh, interview because we were having such a problem connecting earlier. We got cut off, Maya, but uh, I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, you write that the Lebanese constitution has always treated political sectarianism as a temporary solution and in fact calls and sets measures for a national and unified non-sectarian liberal and parliamentary democracy based on a national electoral law. Why has this temporary solution lasted so long? Why has every post-Taif government, that is every government since the 1990 revolution, refused to get rid of this temporary solution? How do they benefit from having this temporary solution in place? Uh, Well, I think they benefit because they, uh, by not moving towards a non-sectarian government, they can continue to uh, basically control political power. And at the same time, there's sort of all these crony capital networks that go along with uh, having a political post. And the interesting thing to me is why it is that um, something that was supposed to be temporary has just been deferred uh, and is never, and what, when you say something is temporary, what you are in expectation of. So I think there's a clear answer. The reason why no one has actually implemented the Taif Accord, because to do so, would remove some of the main uh, conduits of political power that the political class has been using to consolidate its hold, both on the state apparatus and on uh, forms of access to the state by people. So I just want to get back to something about personal status law. Uh, and just to say that there is Lebanon, actually, their legal, the legal system here is very much like the system in Israel. Israel also doesn't have a secular personal status law. Uh, what happens for, for people who have the means to and who don't want to get married under a religious law, religious law is that people can go abroad and get married under a different uh, country's law and that law will be adjudicated in Lebanese courts. I just wanted to clarify that and to say that actually there are other states in the region that have a very similar legal system. So um, are all political parties equally to blame? Are there any political parties that are representing uh, this kind of reform that could happen, the, the, the ending of this temporary solution? Is there any, polit- any voice within the political circle right now that is for ending this temporary solution? Or is that part of the protest, that there is nobody f- trying to end this temporary solution? I think the people who are on the side of just ending political sectarianism uh, and not sort of falling under or falling through the trap of trying to find the exact right conditions to end it are the protesters. It's not, and I don't think that we should be looking anymore to the political class for solutions. I mean, that is, they are the problem. They are the, they are the problem socially, economically, and politically. So actually, I would look to the protesters who are making this um, 
among many other demands and claims, one of which is ending political sectarianism. And here we have to be careful, huh? because in the Constitution, what ending political sectarianism means is it means ending it in Parliament. And, of course, ending uh, some of the political customs that have grown up around political sectarianism, but are in fact not in law. Like, for example, sectarian parity in cabinet. This is a political custom more than it is a law. So does that sort of like when people talk about the need for bipartisanship, a lot of this in the United States is custom. It's not law. Does that make it any more or less difficult to overturn that it's custom and not law? Uh, I do think that in some ways customary law and political cultures and political customs are uh, in some ways harder to grasp. It's, there's, it's sort of like water. It's hard to contain and just sort of, you know, break the glass or throw it out. Um, not because I'm using the word culture uh, in a sense that this this unchanging thing that uh, is so deeply ingrained in people in the Middle East that they're hopeless, they can't change their culture. What I mean is that political cultures are just ways that power has consolidated in order to reproduce itself in ways that don't have to be structural. That could be a certain kind of class politics. It could be a certain kind of, uh, you know, political culture within elective institutions and within institutional uh, institutions, government institutions. And in this case, uh, you have kind of a hybrid where you have a sort of sectarian representation at the level of parliament, an unwritten uh, pledge that Lebanon's uh, main executive offices should be divided. And then around that has grown a political culture where everything has to be defined by sectarian parity. And what's interesting about it is that it's actually oftentimes comes in the language of... uh, sort of making sure that everyone is represented, nobody's rights get trampled on, you know, parity, equality, representation. And what gets lost on all of this is that these are political choices. You don't have a lot of, you know, the way to that you organize politics is not a natural phenomenon. They are, uh, they come out of laws, histories, Uh, complexities that then actually structural ways to organize politics play a role in the production of politics itself. And I think there's a way that we lose the the point when we just talk about representation, that even in talking about this way, we're constituting a certain mode of political difference, which in this case is sectarian. I know that this is a difficult term to be using, and I might be employing it in a way that is inaccurate, but is what is happening in Lebanon then a cultural revolution? And if so, how do we understand it differently if it is a cultural revolution? I think that some of there's been really interesting debate happening recently around the meaning of a revolution. And uh, I don't want to get caught up in uh, only 
you know, trying to find the right words to use as being sort of, you know, the, your political move is deciding whether it's a revolution or an uprising or a mass protest or anything. People here are using multiple terms to uh, define themselves, one of which is revolution. I do think that uh, there are certainly cultural, social, political, and uh, economic aspects of life that we grew, uh, or we, we just took for granted. And what's happening is that people are challenging the taken for granted. Whether that is the assumption that the main political uh, division is political, let's say, rather than class, uh, as well as geographic, and people are challenging assumptions around uh, questions of everything, right? And I think that's what's interesting, is that they're all coming together, and it's really shaking, taken for granted. Is this a revolution that is in any way against religion or against religious identity? Um, can, you, what, can you say more about that question? Well, what do you mean by religion or religious identity? Well, because you write that, uh, let's see, the differences between a civil marriage law and a personal status law are key to understanding this debate. While a marriage law covers marriage and its effects, divorces, separations, assets, in some cases, custody guidelines, personal status laws are much broader and includes issues such as inheritance for Muslims, adoption and guardianship over minor children. So it would seem like all of these kinds of identities and the different personal status laws that everybody, all these different 50 15 different laws that everybody has to tune into one or the other, that that seems to be part of what the uprising is about. And so I started wondering if maybe this is not this is about something bigger, something about maybe anti-religion or maybe just the idea of religious identity. Is this an uprising against either one of those two ideas or am I misreading this? Uh, well, I think first we need to separate whatever we think religion and religious identity is from sectarianism and political sectarianism. Just, I mean, we all, you know, everyone who uh, lives in the contemporary world knows that following laws are not always active consent, right? You don't choose the laws that you follow because you really believe in one or you really don't believe in the other. So people following these personal status laws or having them or just having to do, is not a measure of any kind of consent or uh, religious belief or even sectarian affiliation. These are just the laws that are in the country, right? It's not as if, for example, in the United States, if uh, somebody uh, goes through an inheritance and they inherit it, and according to the law, that doesn't mean that they are ideologically, right, capitalist. It just means that's the law. That's the law that they have to follow. And actually what it means is that is the power of the nation state to compel you to follow laws and to make them taken for granted. So I want to just distinguish uh, religion because I think that there is some confusion sometimes that people assume that sectarian affiliation is the same as religious affiliation. First of all, uh, there are many sects from the same religion, obviously. And also, uh, there are multiple contradictory discourses and claims around this. So I don't think that the uprising is anti-religion at all. Uh, and I wouldn't want to mix an anti-political sectarian 
stance with an anti-religious one, because honestly, that's also the tool that the political class has been using and probably will increasingly use against the protesters to say, actually, they're anti-religious. So I don't want to confuse the two. So you also write that if this is a revolution against the dominant regime in Lebanon, then shouldn't the Constitution, a pillar of that regime, also be in play? Why do protesters feel such a flawed constitution, or at least it appears they feel that such a flawed constitution is worth supporting? Is it nothing more than political strategy to not seem too radical to the public? Or do they truly believe that this constitution can simply be reformed and saved? Uh, I think that, as I said, people who are calling and, and doing this constitution talk are one aspect of the protest movement, which is quite large and varied. All constitutions are flawed. And I think, you know, one of the ways you have to think about law and constitutional law is that, in fact, they need conflict in order to continue, right? I mean, at a point when there is no legal conflict, no contradiction, you actually wouldn't need systems and courts and things like the Supreme Court to decide on contradiction. So all constitutions are flawed and all of them are contradictory. And in fact, in some ways, they need to be in order to actually function and to function long term. So I think that there are, uh, in terms of the protesters, it's very strategic and it's very powerful to call on the power of the Constitution. If you have the Constitution on in your, if you can rely on the Constitution and use the power of the Constitution to actually call on politicians and specify how, in fact, the politicians have been violating the Constitution, it's a very political, politically powerful uh, tool to have in your pocket. I don't think that it defines the protest movement. I think it's one tool among many. Uh, I think they're being very strategic. And I also think that particularly now, because we are in a time of upheaval, it's worth thinking more critically about the Constitution. What kind of political contract do people do we want to have? Uh, and I always think it's a really important political exercise to just think otherwise. And maybe that's because I'm in a... Uh, well, yeah. So I think it's a good political exercise to think otherwise. And that includes the Constitution. I'm really curious. Especially what if we're going to think about uh, who the body public is, right? Like Lebanon, a third of its residents are not Lebanese citizens. They are refugees from other wars in the Middle East. They are uh, migrant laborers, displaced people. A third, a full third of the population are not citizens. So what does a constitution grounded only in the citizenry what does it look like in this kind of context? How can we think with it, beyond it, and how can it inspire us in some ways to think otherwise? You ask what kind of country should Lebanon be and what form of social contract should hold it together? Should economic rights and protections against runaway capitalism be included? What constellation of political, economic, and social rights should refugees and migrant laborers be granted? Should gender equality be expressly written out in this social contract? Should the rights of the environment and or of animals be protected? Should citizens and lawyers and civil society groups have the right to advance cases to the constitutional court? Is this, to any degree, an uprising against the free market and capitalism? 
I think it's definitely a, easily we can say an uprising against the ravages of a completely uh, unaccountable system of capitalism and uh, the ne neoliberalism and the restructuring of the economy after the civil war. So I think definitely, and we're seeing this, uh, you know, across the world in many ways, that there is serious global wealth inequality and uh, poverty and uh, unequal economic systems that are just intensifying across the world transnationally. And there are, this process is being articulated in different ways, given the historical specificities of different locations. So Lebanon is part of this trend, for sure, and it also has its own specificities that are linked to uh, the restructuring of the economy in the post-war era since 1990. I think it's definitely fair to say that, that this is on the table. What kind of economic uh, system, and maybe not economic system, but definitely what kind of economic protections need to be in place to assure, at the very least, a dignified life? Do you think that that is why, that's exactly why we're not seeing any coverage of the Lebanese revolution here in the United States? I think that might be part of it. I also really believe that part of it is that uh, the United States is deeply involved in Lebanese politics, and that is a reason why, uh, and it's involved in sort of very complicated ways. I don't think the and I, and I think that's one of the reasons also. And to be honest, you know, coverage, I can understand the desire for more coverage, but it has to be the right kind of coverage. So it's not just about more coverage. It's about what kind of nuanced, careful, responsible, self-reflective reporting is going to happen. Oh, and it sounds like we lost Maya for a second time. Maya, I have one last question for you. We've been speaking with anthropologist Maya Mikdashi, who wrote the Jadalia.com article, Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer. Maya is co-director of the 2003 documentary film about Baghdad, the first documentary film to have been made in Iraq following the fall of the Saddam Hussein government. Maya is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Rutgers University, co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia Ezine, and you can follow Maya on Twitter at Maya. McDashi. Maya, our final question that we ask to each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. Is the uprising, is the uh, Lebanese revolution, whatever you want to call it, is this about having greater democracy? And if so, why doesn't it warrant the kind of media coverage here in the States that the Hong Kong protests are also about more democracy? Why is that? Why are Hong Kong protests every day on the front page of the New York Times? And I think the Lebanon protests, I don't even think they've made the front page once. Uh, I think that's a good question. As I, you know, I think part of this has to do with the role that the United States plays in the Middle East more generally. Uh, why isn't Iraq on the front page of the New York Times every day, given that there are still U.S. troops in Iraq and given that the United States... 
All right, dude. Let's just <laughs> we can't keep that call going. Sorry. All right. No, that's not your fault. That's not your fault. I, I'm going to blame Alexander Graham Bell or John Skype, whoever <laughs> invented the technology we're using. Let's get Jeffy on the line. We'll send an apology to Maya because that shared, the interview was great. It's too bad we just kept getting interrupted. You're staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is Hell. Coming up, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorch and our last book to make our favorite books list to be featured here on This is Hell in 2019 is, like Gerald Horn, a second-time winner. So you don't want to be racist anymore, I understand. I've heard that. Yeah, I don't want to be racist either, but that's impossible. We're all racist, and, and you know... The sooner we have the courage to admit that we can that we are racist, we can finally move forward, maybe not past that racism, but at least understand it better better. However, while it is impossible to not be racist, it is possible to be anti-racist, which is a very different thing. The last book to make this year's list is Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. You may remember Ibram's book stamped from the beginning the definitive book of racist ideas in america which won a national book award for nonfiction in 2016 also that year it attained the far higher honor of being selected as one of the best books featured on this is hell that year again a far far higher honor i mean that honor is given out when we are really, really high. Ibram is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, a professor of history and international relations, and a frequent public speaker. You can find out more about Ibram at IbramXKendi.com. You can follow Ibram on Twitter at Dr. Ibram. That's D-R Ibram. Listen to our interview with Ibram at ThisIsHell.com, and we'll be playing all of our interviews with the authors on this year's list back-to-back on New Year's Day as your New Year's hangover cure. This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry was here. And now in relief, Jonah Tomko-Smith. Jonah, I know you have Hefe on the line. What doth it profit? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I was recently asked to write a defense of profit, the concept, and I began thus. What doth it profit a man if he gain the world but lose his soul? Mark 8.36 in the King James Bible. King James profited a lot from being a king, so... It's a little odd that he bankrolled this translation that does so much famous trash-talking of money and being rich. Rich. The original quotation from Mark is in Greek. That's why it had to be translated. Ophilei, prophet, from which we get the word avail. What doth it avail a man? Huh? What doth it benefit him? What good does it do him? Is it profitable to gain the world? Is the world available? Are there any in stock? Do you have it in my size? Do you have the kind I like with lots of buried treasure and people to dig it up for me? I could take the easy route and defend benefit. Of course, benefiting is good by definition. Bene, bene, benefit. 
You should do things that are beneficial to you and others. Why not? What kind of question is that? But I know the real question being asked. Jeff Dorchin, Mr. Anti-Productivity, Mr. Laziness is a Virtue, Mr. There's Too Much Emphasis on Participation in Our Society, can you defend the indefensible? Can you defend profiting in the sense the most rapacious capitalist profits? Can you defend alienation of labor and theft from the worker of surplus value? Can you defend the thing you despise most, the assigning of monetary value to objects and actions at the expense of their true worth? Can you defend the reducing of this glorious world, its poetry, its lore, its knowledge, its waters, its mountains, its forests, the very stars in the sky, to a collection of material resources to be haggled over, to become the property of whoever can wrangle and connive the legal right to control them? No, I can't. I can, but as a joke. And of what benefit would that be to you, to me, to anyone? What doth it profit? The joke is, we're born into this cosmos, this vast expanse of mystery, blazing stars and spiraling galaxies expanding out into infinity. We look around and see all the beauty from the most complex symphonic music to the simplest humble potato, from the calculus describing the shape of a cloud to the unprepossessing droplet of water. And it's only possible because 14 billion years ago, something emerged from nothing, somehow and became atoms that attracted each other, crushed together by massive gravity, they ignited into stars, and eventually, over billions of years, through stellar generations, forged in their furnace bellies all the matter, the very calcium in our bones, the oxygen in the water in the ocean, the carbon in the sugar in an apple. Everything is only here on Earth because stars, separated from us by light years and aeons, were born and shone and collapsed and exploded and their material made other celestial bodies, including the very planet we live on. It's amazing. There is no end to the mystery and miracle of the universe, the unlikelihood of its even existing, the complex proliferation of forms and shapes, color, flavor, energy, and life. And the joke is, in the midst of all this miracle, you gotta pay a goddamn parking ticket. You gotta fill out insurance forms. You gotta deal with a hangnail. You sprain your ankle. You get shot by an overzealous security guard. Or you have to watch while the security guard who killed your nephew or grandson suffers the minimum legal consequences and just keeps on harassing your family. And you think you could just work hard and strategically leverage your profit so you can create a barrier between yourself and the mundane crud of this world. You know, pay someone to deal with all the unmiraculous, everyday, bleak nonsense so you can spend your limited time in the world only appreciating the miracle of it all. But even the most rarefied, privileged capitalist has to deal with annoyance. Even the most sublime artist has to deal with a biopsy of a scary-looking blemish on their ass, with a dead rat, with poop, with vomiting, with snot, with sadness, with squalor of one kind or another. Don't get me wrong, we don't all suffer the same, and it infuriates me that some profit needlessly by making others needlessly suffer. It just makes that kind of squalor, the kind caused by unfairness and injustice, even more depressing. But the joke is... There's no escaping the mundane, the painful, the sad, and the squalid. Ha, ha, ha. Funny. Funny joke. And, of course, dying can't escape that. Ugh, 
the hilarity of it all. What doth it avail? What good is it? Well, at least Linda Berry was impressed with my record collection. At least I got to make out with Tay Diggs at that Golden Globes after party. At least I saw the Northern Lights. At least I fell in love once. At least I can understand Elizabethan poetry. At least I know where they make the best mole. At least I know a good cheap tailor. At least I'm not being sued by the government right now. And those things can be a solace on a lonely, cold night when you're reduced to measuring your worth by the shallowest possible measure, how much you've gotten out of life, and how much misery you've avoided. I'm not going to lie. It doth profit. It doth avail. It doth benefit. Availability will avail a man. Benefit will benefit a man. Profit will profit a man. Duh! By definition, profit doth profit. I admit it, okay? You happy now? You happy? This has been the moment of truth. <laughs> Good day. Jeff, I got an email. Uh, that wasn't even, even an email. Anyway, I got a comment from a listener this week who told me that uh, I'm, first of all, I'm too bitter. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's one of your qualities. Uh, and seeing as how I say at the beginning of every show, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap tooth, that's right out there. You know, so <laughs> I don't really get it. Should I say I'm not that bitter? I don't know. And the other thing is, you're going to like this. The show is too dark. Oh. So, uh, you know, get one of those lights, I, I have to say, one of those lights, you know, that you use for seasonal affective disorder, yeah. those really bright things that you set up, set that up while you're listening to it. It'll cheer you up. <laughs> It'll literally cheer you up. I, I was just like, what do you mean the show is too dark? It's called This Is Hell. <laughs> I'm going to go tune into a show called This Is Hell with a guy who says he's a bitter, blind, broke host, and I'm going to be upset that the show is too bitter and too dark. I just don't. I'm going to get my jollies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, on that yeah. humorous note. Yeah, humor. <laughs> stay beautiful, my friend. All right, you too. All right, take care. The kind of stuff that starts fights at your holiday dinner table. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, our starting pitcher was Alex Jerry, and our closer was Jonah Tomko-Smith. We hope to see you tonight at our weekly Wednesday meet-and-greet. This is hell. Office hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. More than a meet-and-greet. This is hell. Office hours as they think and drink. Join us Wednesday evening, this evening, or any Wednesday evening for This Is How Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And my understanding is that tonight there will be Italian beef and masticcioli. Holy cow, that's like way better than usual. And don't forget, our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party happens next Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until somebody does something stupid. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party, your holiday office party, and invite all your coworkers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? I don't blame you. Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own homes? Then invite all your coworkers 
your virtual co-workers to the annual This Is Hell holiday office party, where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell-related gift. Need a last-minute gift? We'll also have all of our merchandise up here available in our studio. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. By the way, if you are part of an organization that does need a meeting space... This space up here that we share with an art art gallery above Carrie's Lounge is available for private and public functions. If you need a place to get together with others, a community space, a place to organize, then email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We'll get you in touch with the people who book this space. News that scares the news. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. We don't have anyone confirmed yet for next week's show, so follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook to find out who is on next week's show. And if you want to hear my new monologue on the words I try to live by in my daily life and our interview with John Gatto Taylor on the problems with schooling, Subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only, oh, let me thank everybody who's been on this week's show. I want to thank first Maya McDashi, who wrote the Jadalia.com article, Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer. And even though we got cut off a couple of times with her, the content of what she was saying was absolutely incredible. So you got to go back and listen to that again. I think Alex will probably try to clean it up in post, so it'll be a little bit better to listen to when you go to our website, thisishell.com, later today. I also want to thank Nicole Ashoff, author of the Jacobin article, Against Self-Driving Cars. That was a very enjoyable interview. Uh, Nicole and I always have a great time talking to each other and often laugh throughout the interview Uh, So sorry about that. Also, thanks to Penn Donovan, author of School is Stupid, and sociologist Daniel Aldana Cohen, co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. And we want to remind you that this week's hangover cure was egg and chips and a bottle of Lucozade. But if you didn't hear us read the hangover cure earlier this week, it's pretty fascinating to learn that an emotional hangover is the empty lethargic feeling you have post big night, but without drinking. And it is, has all the same symptoms as a regular hangover. So if you're going to be depressed tomorrow because of the outcome of the British elections, well, egg and chips, and a bottle of Lucozade. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.